Okay, um, thanks for joining us, everyone. Um, we're going to uh, talk about uh, best practices for building a data lake on um, AWS and Glacier today. And we've got a few uh, guest stars from uh, Viber and Airbnb who are going to uh, share their stories. So let's get started. What are we going to cover today? Essentially, we're gonna talk about what a data lake is on S3 and Glacier and some of the common characteristics and uh, why we choose these architectures. We're gonna focus a bit on data cataloging since that's an essential part. Um, security, performance, and analytics are absolutely the core of doing this successfully. And then finally, you're gonna hear from Viber and Airbnb about um, what they've done and um, you know, they're gonna share their best practices. So what is a data lake? Let's start off by defining it because like a lot of other ubiquitous overused terms like cloud or big data, data lake's one of those things that people have been talking about for several years now. But you know, it could mean anything from a data warehouse to just uh, plain dumb storage. So when we talk about building a data lake on AWS, what are we really talking about? Essentially, it's a platform to consolidate all of your data assets in a single location where you can then start to characterize them, transform them, analyze them, and ultimately share and distribute the results. And so some of the common defining attributes um, that we uh, ascribe to a data lake are you wanna be able to decouple storage and compute for a couple of reasons. Number one, for cost optimization, so you're only paying for what you use of each, and also for elasticity so that you can grow and shrink on demand as meet your business needs. Um, rapid ingest and transformation is a key attribute, particularly when we start to think about more and more use cases going streaming and closer and closer to real time. Um, Secure multi-tenancy is at the core of it. I mean, ultimately, one of the problems with traditional analytic architectures was fragmentation of many different silos. So you really wanna be able to consolidate those silos into a single platform, get the data in one place, bring all the users and lines of business and consumers to the data where it lives and process it in place and query it in place. And then ultimately, you wanna innovate rapidly and try new ideas and fail fast. So it's gotta have schema on read. So obviously a data lake can be a lot more than this, but these are kind of the core defining attributes that we're gonna talk about today. Um, so what can you do with a data lake? Um, many, many use cases, um, once you get the data on a centralized platform like S3. You know, the first is obviously the bread and butter of uh, you know, where analytics came out of, batch processing. So if you wanna just do ad hoc data exploration, visualization, you can uh, put the data in S3 and use our managed services or even our serverless um, services like Redshift Spectrum, Athena, EMR, and a whole host of BI tools um, to you know, just start to do ad hoc exploration of data, batch processing, um, and uh, large-scale ad hoc reporting, or even structured reporting. But ultimately, you know, where the meat of it is today is really around streaming and real-time analytics. And so you can ingest data and process it as you're ingesting it in, store it so you have historical records and can do you know, a lot of batch background processing. But there's a whole host of services you can bring to the data to um, do streaming and real-time analysis for a whole array of use cases like um, telematics has been a big topic of conversation, obviously predictive maintenance, um, you know, you name it, you can do it with streaming and analytics. Um, and then finally, as we've heard a lot about several announcements at uh, reInvent, um, AI and machine learning is really big. So, um, you know, when you get the data on the platform, a whole host of uh, services to um, speed how you can uh, implement AI and machine learning. So pick your use case, um, we've got you covered because at the end of the day, most of you aren't going to do one of these use cases. It's not gonna be the tyranny of or, where it's like you get to choose A or B or C. It's how do you do all of the above? And that's really the power of the data lake is consolidate your data assets, bring a whole array of tools to the data so that um, no matter what your use case is, no matter how broad and varied your business, you've got this central platform to build on and transform around 
as your levels of sophistication grow and your use cases evolve. So why do we choose S3 for a data lake? Let's start with the core here. First is, if you're gonna put all your data assets on a single platform, it's gotta have rock solid durability. You know, so that's built into S3 from the get-go, designed for 11 nines of durability, um, virtually unlimited scalability of both performance and capacity. So it gives you that foundation that you're never gonna outgrow and your data's gonna be um, you know, secure and well-protected because security, compliance, and audit is another core foundation that needs to be there. I mean, when you look at all of the, uh, you know, major banks, insurance companies, you know, people that are healthcare that are in compliant industries, you can't compromise on any of these attributes. So, you know, it's got all those core capabilities built in. Um, another is scalability of management um, because you may start and you can build a data lake. People think big when they think data lake, but you can start a data lake with 10 terabytes of data, you know, scale to petabytes. But what you can't do is scale the manpower and effort required to manage all that data. So we've got object level controls to do that for you. Um, and then obviously, you know, we've got um, a huge number of partner integrations because we've announced more and more services as you've heard about, um, you know, here at reInvent, but, um, there's a whole broad ecosystem of people you wanna use that are well integrated as well. Um, data ingest is key because data is going to be coming from a lot of sources. And then ultimately, you're gonna to wanna to get business insights to your data and accelerate those time to insights. So we're constantly innovating with things like S3 Select and Glacier Select that you heard about. So another key factor is obviously optimizing cost. And when you build a data lake on S3 and Glacier, um, you don't have to have all your data in S3 and Glacier. You can really do intelligent tiering so that you're fitting your workload and data to where it should best reside for optimal performance, optimal cost, long-term retention. And so you can really integrate this whole range of native Hadoop um, on uh, local storage, S3 standard, S3 and frequent access for colder data and ultimately Glacier for um, archive data, and tie it all together with storage analytics to help you understand how to do this, and ultimately write policies to do it automatically to, once again, you know, scale management. Um, another key factor, obviously, is very rich data sources are gonna come into the data lake, so how do you integrate them all natively and easily. And we've got a whole host of ingestion methods here, whether it's integrating legacy file apps like mainstream, uh, mainframe computers. Um, you know, we've got file gateways to help you do that. If you wanna lift and shift from an existing data lake, we have things like Snowball and Snowmobile to do bulk lifting. Um, Firehose is the foundation for streaming data. And obviously a whole host of native and ISV connectors so that your applications and um, you know, consumers and uh, brokers of data can write directly to S3. And then if you're integrating long haul data, we've got things like transfer acceleration, or if you're building hybrid environments, direct connect. So once again, it's not one method, it's many methods that you're gonna use and integrate. Once you get the data in, obviously, cataloging it is key because you've gotta know what you have. And there's a couple different ways to catalog. If you're going to use your data lake for more than analytics, you're probably gonna to wanna to build a master catalog. And we've seen a number of customers do this using Lambda and um, triggers on uh, you know, S3 um, operations to populate a um, DynamoDB a Metastore index. And if you look at um, you know, uh, EMRFS or where Apache Hadoop's going, this is how they um, you know, build a master catalog and uh, address some of the eventual consistency um, design of uh, S3. But you can also um, populate an elastic um, catalog so that you can start to do very intelligent searches for data and data attributes. But ultimately, you're going to want to have an analytics-specific catalog that all of your common apps like um, Athena, Redshift, Redshift Spectrum, EMR, you know, Apache, Hadoop, can all integrate into. And once again, it's about automating this process. And so we have Glue, which essentially is a, um, you know, 
integrated service um, that runs in S3, serverless, um, that as you ingest data, it will both catalog it and then ultimately down the road transform it and ETL the data. And so that gives you a centralized glue um, data catalog that's um, integrated with all common uh, analytics apps that can use a Hive Metastore. And so, you know, it essentially is Hive Metastore compatible, and if you've got an existing Hive catalog, you can migrate it into Glue. We've got tools to help you do that. But we've added some extensions to make it easier to do data discovery, data lineage, and classification. And the really cool and interesting thing about Glue is we've got crawlers. So when you ingest new data in, you can either schedule or use uh, things like Lambda triggers to fire off these crawlers, and they'll go and automatically discover data, and not just the raw data assets, but even schema the data, and populate this catalog automatically. So it's all about reducing the heavy lifting of doing all these manual processes, automating it, and then scaling it. So with that, I'm going to turn over to my colleague, Petey, and he's going to go deeper into some of the other attributes. So now that you've decided that Amazon S3 and Glacier is foundational for your data lake, it is imperative that you focus on data security, optimizing performance, and optimizing analytics. So let's start with security. There are many ways that you can secure your data in your data lake, right from identity and access management, to encryption, to adhering to any compliance or regulatory compliance. So for example, Amazon Macy, you automatically classifies and identifies within an object if you have business-sensitive data, such as personal identification numbers, and then gives you the visibility so that you can make changes to it. The combination of bucket policies, object ACLs, and bucket ACLs gives you a very fine-grained control on your buckets as well as the objects within them. And so that you get the desired outcome from it, we came up with a set of uh, managed config rules to secure your S3 buckets. Now, using that same underlying technology, now if you go to the S3 console, you can identify that which of your buckets are, have public access. Then go and make those changes confidently. Similarly, we made some changes where with a bucket policy and changing the bucket configuration, you can mandate that all the objects going into your data lake is encrypted by default. So our customers use server-side encryption, and AWS employs strong multi-factor uh, encryption, which is called envelope encryption. So you can manage access controls by monitoring who has access to your encryption keys, and hence your data. So for example, you can use IAM to create users with temporary credentials. So given user for a certain period of time can access the encryption keys and hence your data. Beyond that time, they won't have access to that data. So some of our customers use server-side encryption, either SSES3 or SSEKMS. If you're using SSES3, every individual object is encrypted by a unique data key, and that data key additionally is encrypted by a master key that we automatically rotate within S3. Now it's important to note that this is data encryption at rest. So an authorized request from an anonymous user with, with through an SDK or CLI, if they do a GET request, once it leaves the S3 subsystem, you'll be able to read the data. If you want additional safeguards and controls, a lot of our customers use AWS KMS, or Key Management Service. In that case, the master keys are kept and they don't leave the KMS service. The key, data keys are generated and sent to S3 over a secure connection, and they individually encrypt the objects there. The master key has to have ex extra, extra key usage policies. So you need IAM policies and key usage policies to be validated before you have access to the encryption keys, and hence your data. So security entitlements are integral part of your data lake. So here are the things that we recommend. By default, an S3 usage or resource is private. So the bucket owner or the resource owner uh, owns the access to it. But here's what you should keep in mind. Always follow the IAM best practices, such as creating users and creating uh, permission groups and assigning permissions and not using the root credentials. If you're using AWS SDK or CLI, by default, those HTTPS requests are sent over a secure connection. But then if you're using something custom, we recommend that you sign it with SIGB4 and then send it through an SSL connection. Secondly, use server-side encryption. We are doing the undifferentiated heavy lifting for you. 
So you can use SSEKMS or SSEC or SSES3. Uh, and then you can mandate that every object that goes into that bucket is default, uh, encrypted by default. And finally, if you want to protect your data for, from accidental overwrites or application failures, use versioning. If you use versioning, we keep on updating the, a version, a new version as you write the object with the same key name. If by accident it gets deleted, we just add a delete marker to it. And you can't get the object, but it does not get deleted and can be restored from previous versions. So let's shift gears and talk about how can you optimize performance. S3 by default scales to thousands of requests per second for steady state traffic per prefix. If there is a peak or if there is a burst, then S3 will adjust quickly. Now this is good for 1,000 requests per second or 2,000 requests per second, but then if you're looking at hundreds of thousands of requests per second, we recommend that you add an alphanumeric three, four character hash before the date. And then if you want it to be a little more list friendly, there's an example right here where you have a prefix right before the hash. So putting it all together, in terms of a data lake, we recommend that you aggregate small files and create a large file as you put it into S3. Your goal should be 128 megabytes or higher. Having larger files has three benefits. You have faster listing, there is less metadata lookup, and then request cost goes down. With EMR, the S3 diskcp command helps you do so. Or if you have a clickstream or IoT type of workload, you can stream the data, those small files, with Kinesis Firehose, and use Kinesis Firehose to consolidate the data and then put it onto S3. Secondly, if you, have, if you want to efficiently query uh, objects within the objects, data within the objects, you can use S3 Select. And I'm going to go a little deeper when I talk about analytics in place. And then Parquet or ORC, which are columnar data formats, often helps improve query performance. If you're using EMR and you use consistent view, list, delete, and read after write consistencies for multiple MapReduce jobs happening on the same data set can be minimized. So you can have list consistency with EMR consistent view. So let's talk about analytics and query in place. Amazon S3 is the only cloud storage provider that helps you run sophisticated analytics in place with just SQL queries. So you can have uh, Athena running SQL queries on unstructured data or Redshift Spectrum running uh, SQL queries on structured data. In this slide, you see an end-to-end -end architecture of persistently storing data on Amazon S3 and then analyzing with different analytics engine and then visualizing it with QuickSight. Natively, within S3, you have S3 Select. It's a powerful API that goes within the object and retrieves data with just SQL select from where clauses. So think of a use case where you have 200 stores putting weekly sales data into a single large object, and you want the data for only one store for that week. Your application now can call S3 Select API. It will go within the object and just get that data, thereby reducing cost and optimizing performance to a great deal. If your workloads demand highly distributed processing frameworks, EMR is the way to go. With Amazon EMR, Storage and compute is decoupled, so you're optimizing cost, improving performance, there is elasticity. You can run multiple EMR clusters, right-size them, shut them down without impacting anything on S3. If you're using EMR, it is a good idea to compress those data sets using compression algorithms, such as gzip, bzip, lzo, snappy. It depends on your use case whether you want faster compression or you want more compression, and these are the pros and cons of these algorithms. Parquet format or ORC format, it does not matter which analytics engine you're using or tool you're using, a columnar format will always benefit querying uh, your data. And ultimately, aggregating small files with S3 DSCP glue by cross and uh, achieving the optimal file size will always help you with reducing request costs and faster query performance. If you have cases where you're using structured data, with large tables, complex queries with large joins, or you already have a use case where you're using Redshift, you can now, without doing ETL, use Redshift Spectrum and do those complex queries. 
So restoring data from data warehouses, and if you're thinking hundreds of terabytes of data, that takes time, that in induces latency. So now what you can do is push those large tables onto S3, use Redshift Spectrum, and then spin up read-only clusters when you have a spike, and then do those analytics. Redshift Spectrum also charges by the data that you scan, and it pulls the columns on the S3 tables. So if you have columnar formats, it'll eliminate all the unneeded columns that are not required, and if you know which columns you're frequently using, you can partition them, and then that'll improve your query as well. And there are certain SQL operations such as sum, uh, the aggregate functions, sum, average, min, max, or the group by clauses, that those predicates you can push down to the spectrum layer, and that'll improve your query performance uh, much higher. Finally, if you want to run ad hoc queries on uh, unstructured data, you want to use something which is serverless, that is fully managed, so you're not managing any infrastructure, you want to do schema on read, then Athena is a very good tool to do so. Simply define the schema on the console, point it to the S3 data, and then uh, start querying. We recommend that you use Parquet because it automatically compresses the data and then splits it. Splitting that data will in introduce parallelism, and then multiple Athena clients can access that data. And ultimately, to reduce any overhead of doing that query, uh, op optimizing the file size, so putting on larger file sizes of 120 megabytes or higher, will always be better in terms of reducing cost and optimizing performance. So we took a customer data set, and we did an example where we put it in a CSV or text format and compared it to a Parquet format. Whether it's the size of storage on S3, the query runtime, or the data scan, or the cost, there were multiple benefits that we saw when we ran it in Parquet format. So it's highly recommended that with any query in place that you do, Parquet is going to be much better. Now that we have set the context, I would like to invite our, invite our first special guest, Amir Ish Shalom, to talk about Viber. He's the chief architect at Viber. Hi, everybody. Uh, I've been with Viber for uh, something like six years, which is uh, almost from the beginning. While in uh, the US it's a bit less popular, in many countries around the world, uh, Viber is the most popular instant messaging uh, application, sometimes even more than Facebook. In contrast to most um, instant messaging applications, uh, we end-to-end -end encrypt all of our data uh, and all of the messages and media formats that we're doing and have full multi-device support. In 2017, uh, Rakuten, which is our parent company, uh, became the official sponsor of uh, FCB Barcelona and the NBA Golden State Warriors. Uh, I received also the jersey of FCB, but unfortunately not the Golden State Warriors yet, still waiting for that. <laughs> um, these teams are using Viber uh, to be their uh, official uh, messaging and communications platforms, and they're using our public account, and they have millions of followers on that. Uh, they also uh, have uh, chatbots, which uh, uh, users can use to basically choose their MVP players and uh, share experiences. So uh, it's a lot more encompassing uh, experience with Viber. But let's talk a little bit about data. I want to show you a short video uh, showing what happens in Viber in just 60 seconds, so you get a feel of what we do. So Viber is what's called a planetary scale uh, application. Uh, we're in almost every country around the world uh, with close to a billion users. We have 10 to 15 billion events daily uh, with peaking at over 300,000 events per second. We store five petabytes of data on S3 and Glacier. Uh, and our production NoSQL database called Couchbased uh, is doing over 2 million transactions per second on 20 terabytes of data and 35 billion keys. So we're working with quite a lot of data. 
Now, in order to handle that amount of data, the architecture that we use is this. We basically have from our production database systems, we send events uh, to our real-time data pipeline, which is Kinesis. Uh, this is fanned out into two consumers, one which uh, backs up the raw data, which is uh, Kinesis Firehose using Lambda transformations. And we have our real-time data processor, which is Apache Storm, which handles the real-time uh, event handling. This both cleans the events, verifies them, and sends them into real-time processing that's required, such as spam handling and updating our uh, profile database, uh, which is, again, Couchbase. Then it writes down, it fans down the different events. We have over 300 event types, and it fans them out into different directories on our S3 data lake. We have many different ETL jobs, which do all kinds of analytics and aggregations. Uh, we have different uh, Spark jobs, uh, Presto, Pig, even Lambda functions. Uh, and all the data is basically returned back uh, to our uh, data lake uh, after processing. Some of the data is also loaded into data warehouses, uh, such as Redshift or standard databases like Aurora or MySQL. Uh, then we have our query engines, uh, which we use Athena, Presto, and others uh, to query those data, and finally going into our reporting tools, uh, which we use uh, Tableau for most of our business users, and we also have some self-service reporting uh, done with Redash and Zeppelin and others. I'd like to take you through a few of our challenges that we had with our data lake. Um, the first is a few S3 performance issues, uh, then data access rights, uh, encrypted data storage, and how do you store data from third parties. So regarding S3 performance, we have, as I mentioned before, over 300 different event types. These are all ingested into our Kinesis stream to Apache Storm. And the problem is that some of these events are very high throughput. They can reach over 50,000 events per second, while others uh, are very slow. They can, can come on in, let's say, once every few minutes. And what happens is that uh, because it's written into a Hive directory format by um, uh, the day, the month, day, uh, and hour, uh, basically the, what happens is the, the slower events become very, very small files. Uh, and then when we have, uh, a, let's say, a big Presto cluster, which is running on a very large range of uh, dates, let's say a few months, on one of these events, uh, it could run through the, uh, the files very, very fast. I and mean, we were reaching uh, peaks of over 15,000 TPS on a single S3 bucket, which caused throttling. Um, now the problem is it's not only throttling this request, it's throttling everything on our data lake. So that means that all of our ETL jobs, our storm processor, all of these are basically uh, getting operational pains. So we had to find some kind of solution for that. So what we did is we had uh, two parts. One is to concatenate the smaller files into uh, larger ones, uh, optimally over 100 megabytes. We do this uh, using the tool that they mentioned before, uh, which is S3DSCP. And the second part is to use a columnar data format, which uh, in our case we use Parquet, but as they said, uh, doesn't really matter or see as good as well. And we use uh, an EMR Spark uh, cluster in order to do that. We also want to further optimize this by basically doing those two in a single stage in order to remove the latency involved. And we're uh, thinking of doing that either with a Spark job or maybe using the managed ETL uh, called Glue in Amazon. Another two optimizations we're looking into is to use reverse high partitioning, which basically means to reverse the year, month, day, hour upside down uh, so we have uh, better partitioning over uh, different S3 uh, physical partitions. And finally, use even larger files than 100 megabytes for the larger throughput events, which could further improve performance. The next use case is data access rights. Uh, these days, you've probably heard a lot of the GDPR and all of these uh, data privacy um, concerns, which are, of course, very valid. And we always strive to keep users' privacy. And we want to, uh, our events sometimes contain sensitive data, such as phone numbers. Uh, they're only containing uh, metadata, just to be clear, no messages or things like that inside the events. And even if there were, they're end-to-end -end encrypted, so we couldn't read them anyway. Uh, so we want to be able to work with these events, uh, but limit our uh, employees and uh, access to the personal data. So we have two ways of doing that. The first is uh, to have a redacted version of the data, which is basically means that we're going to make certain fields uh, disappear. 
All of our uh, event, data beta, event data is stored in Aurora, so it contains for each different uh, events all of the fields. And for each field, we can specify if it should be redacted or not. So let's say the phone number I mentioned before, we would mark it as to, uh, to be redacted. Then we have an automated process which would take the event data and create two different Hive metastores, one with the full access data and one with those fields redacted, which basically makes them disappear. Then for, let's say we have a reporting tool, the user would uh, try to log in using an LDAP Active Directory, and then we would map uh, for that user if he has the full access or the redacted access to the data. The, sec the second option that we have is to anonymize the data. Um, what we do is that we have in our storm uh, real-time processor getting the events before they're actually written to S3. Um, we basically check if that field should be anonymized. Anonymizing data allows us to leave the, uh, the, full, uh, the full event intact, but uh, still allow uh, the event to be unique uh, according to user and things like that. Um, and then it's written uh, to S3 anonymized. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do that for all of our fields uh, because we have all kinds of legal uh, requirements to keep some of that data, and also it limits some of our data science capabilities. Um, so we basically have some kind of hybrid solution. So for some events or in some fields, we use the redacted version, and for others, we use the anonymization uh, capabilities. The third use case I'd like to talk about is uh, encrypting uh, data storage. Um, the one I want to talk about is that we uh, back up our production database servers, the couch-based servers that I was talking about before. Uh, we back them up daily to uh, S3. This data has uh, very sensitive data and very important data, so we want them to be encrypted. We want to have strict access control over who can access this data. We want to uh, be able to replicate this data over to another region. And we want to have a rather complex data retention. Uh, this is very large data, so in order to save costs, what we want to do is have, for the first number of days uh, of the backup, we want to store them on S3, and weekly backups up to, let's say, a month, we want to move them into infrequent access uh, for saving costs. So the way that we do that, there we go, <laughs> is uh, we have our uh, database servers. They're backing up to the local region uh, S3 bucket, and we use server-side encryption KMS for that to encrypt the data. This also gives us better access control because even though, you, let's say, some users may have access to that bucket uh, or certain processes could have like S3 asterisks or whatever to all the buckets, if they don't have specific access to the KMS key, they won't be able to access that data. Um, so that's very important to us. Um, regarding the lifecycle policies, what we do is that we use a rather new feature called object level tagging. Uh, which allows us to tag each specific file with a specific tag, and then we tag the ones that we want to stay in S3 with, let's say, an S3 tag, and the ones that we want to move to SIA, we tag them with an SIA tag. And then we can set the lifecycle policy to set them to the correct lifecycle policy according to the tag. And finally, we, we use a very new feature that was just released a few weeks ago, which is the cross-region uh, replication KMS to replicate uh, the files from the local S3 bucket to another region uh, while it's uh, encrypted both in transit and in rest in, in the final destination. So that's been very useful, that new feature. Thanks, guys. <laughs> final use case I'd like to talk about is uh, storage of data uh, that we receive from third parties into our data lake. Um, we don't want to give them direct access to our data lake. Uh, we want to also validate the data and uh, allow optional data transformation on it. So what we do is ha we have some kind of uh, DMZ S3 bucket. Uh, so it's a separate S3 bucket from our data lake uh, that we provide access keys uh, to our third parties and they can write data using that to that bucket. Then we have a Lambda function which is triggered for each file that's written there. Uh, then that Lambda function could do those data validations, transformations, and copy the files uh, to our S3 data lake uh, securely and safely, and also optionally encrypt them if it's necessary. So just to summarize, uh, Viber stores all of its data and events in a centralized data lake. This provides us access by a large number of query tools and ETL jobs very easily. 
To get better performance, always use large files and uh, column or data formats. For users' privacy, use either redacted or anonymization uh, in order to uh, make PII data more safe from uh, your employees. And finally, for security, use KMS for encryption and uh, for data from third parties, you can use an S3 DMZ with Lambda functions to copy them to your data lake. So thank you very much. Now we would like to invite our second special guest, Hongbo Zeng, who's a software engineer at Airbnb, and who's going to talk about how they are building their data lake. Thanks, Petey. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Hongbo. I'm an engineer from the data infrastructure team at Airbnb. Today, I'm going to talk about the tiered storage system in our data warehouse. I'm going to cover the storage challenges we are facing in our data warehouse, the tiered storage system that we built to solve the, to solve the issues, and uh, the, some optimizations that we did um, to improve the S3 access performance. At Airbnb, the amount of data grows tremendously. We are seeing over three times, over three times year over year growth rate, um, and we have tens of petabytes of data in our data warehouse. We used to put uh, all our data in, H in HDFS, but uh, it didn't take too long for us to generate too many file blocks for Lambda to handle. Uh, also, the bill is not small to pay for the powerful EC2 instances that we used to build the HDFS. We wanted to move massive amount of data to S3, but there are a couple of things we want to, we want to address. For instance, uh, the inventory consistency, uh, the data access performance. So the solution is um, a tiered storage system. We want to keep the hard data on HDFS while we move the warm and cold data to S3. So such that we bring the best of the both together. We have good performance to, uh, to access the recently generated data, which we query the most. By leveraging every S3, we have uh, infinite, uh, infinite scalability and a lower cost. As you can see from the chart that people use various uh, clients to write and read and write data to HD, on HDFS, and we periodically move the old data to S3, and the people can read data from S3 later on. So this is how we do it. We have pipelines to collect H, uh, FS image of HDFS, and also dump the hypermeta store to our data warehouse. The storage processor takes in configurable archive policy and the retention policy uh, to decide which are the, which data sets we want to delete and which data sets to um, to move to S3. We get we because we know like what data are generated every day from the pipelines. So in the next two slides, I'm going to focus on how we back up data to S3 and how we archive data from HDFS. So I'm going to use one example, like just uh, like one high partition to show you how we back up the data to S3. Since we back up tons of data to S3 every day, so parallelism is the key here. There are a couple of uh, MapReduce jobs involved in this process. So firstly, MapReduce job is to uh, look for all the files within this partition and generate the destination S3 pass for each of the file in the, uh, in the partition. So based on the mapping between the source file and the destination pass, we have another MapReduce job to do the copy from HDFS to S3. To ensure the integrity of the data, we generate and compare the CRC of the files. The last step in the backup process is to update the high meta store of the information that we have a successful backup for this partition. 
So in the archive step, so we need to verify if we have, if the backup is, is successful, valid, and up-to-date. Because it's possible that after we backup a partition, people regenerate data for this partition. And then we do some lightweight uh, data validation, such as comparing the number of files and the size of the files, because we already did the CRC. The last important step is to update the locations of the partitions, such that for future queries, they are going to query the data from S3 instead of HDFS. This slide shows the timeline of how we handle a partition. For, uh, for example, we uh, generate that our partition today, and by the end of the day, we're going to back, the, back up the partition to S3. After the data kind of cools off, uh, let's say one month later, we're going to archive the data and delete the data from HDFS. By that time, we will get a consistent view for the data on S3. So are all the challenges solved by this tiered storage system? Well, partly, because we still want to improve the performance of S3. We dived deep into S3A file system, which is a Hive uh, client to access S3 open sourced by HanaWorks. We did a couple of optimizations and we ended up having S3A plus file system. So these are the optimizations we did, including metadata cache, leveraging multi-part API, and read, and read, read prefetch. So getting metadata from S3 is not as performant as HDFS. So it takes um, tens of milliseconds or even like 100 milliseconds, over 100 milliseconds to get the metadata, metadata for one S3 object. So we've seen a Hive query that stores for 40 minutes just waiting for all the metadata to, uh, to return from S3 before doing any real job. So we put the metadata into RDS uh, database to accelerate the retrieval. Uh, this schema here is pretty simple. We need to identify if uh, S3 pass is a, is a directory or not, and also the length for each of the object. With this, we achieved a 30 times speed up for metadata retrieval. Um, S3 multi-part API provides a couple of advantages, including improved throughput, uh, quick recovery from any network issues. Here we focus on the throughput. First, we evaluate the um, bandwidth, the right, uh, the right throughput by leveraging multi-part API. We experiment with various uh, part size and uh, number of threads. As you can see here, we achieved like more than three times improvement over the baseline. Another important optimization we did is read prefetch. We proactively initiate fetching for the next couple of parts when we read data. It not only reduced the latency for data fetching, it also improved the the uh, read perform read throughput. So with the like the uh, decent with a small number of prefetching threads and uh, the different um, part size, which achieve like over two times like read read throughput improvement. We used a couple of real hive queries to test the performance of our. Uh, optimization. Um, so the latency improvement ranges from 10% to 10 times, depends on, depending on how many S3 objects that one query reads, and also depending on like the proportion proportion of time that you one query spend on the uh, spend on reading data versus uh, computation. 
So this wraps up my uh, talk, and thank you, guys. Okay, great. Um, so, uh, you know, you've heard a couple of great examples of uh, how to build a data lake on AWS, S3, and Glacier, and um, some best practices for that. So to wrap it all up and get to Q&A so you can uh, ask uh, good uh, probing questions of our special guest, what did we learn? You know, always store a raw copy, a copy of your raw input data, because you never know what you're going to want to do with it down the road. Um, you know, use Lambda and S3 events to start to trigger and automate um, the full spectrum of workload. Security, obviously, is the foundational, so implement the right security methods and controls. Be mindful of your data format for efficiency and uh, performance. Partition data to improve performance and compression to uh, save space and reduce cost and um, improve performance. So. Um, you know, these are uh, a few of the best practices, and you can certainly ask questions of our panel about other best practices they'd recommend. So finally, to wrap it up, you know, we've talked about how storage is foundational for building a data lake. So we have a whole series of educational courses if uh, you're intrigued by the idea of building a data lake, don't know a lot about um, S3, AWS storage services and how to put them to use, as well as all of our other storages that may go into other tools you'd build around a data lake. So the education's out there. So thanks again for joining us. And with that, let's uh, open it up for Q&A. We use the microphone here. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Yeah, question uh, on the Storm usage. Uh, did you guys consider using Lambda instead of Storm? And uh, if you did not choose to use Lambda, then why? Yeah, um, we did think of uh, using Lambda instead of uh, Storm, but there's a few uh, issues that we were uh, afraid of using Lambda because uh, Lambda is, uh, I think it's mapped to a single um, shard in a Kinesis stream, the amount of concurrent lambdas that you can run. And because we're running such a high throughput uh, number of events, uh, we were afraid that it wouldn't keep up with the speed. And also we wanted to work with, we wanted to do quite a lot of things like work with our NoSQL database, uh, and it does look quite a lot of processing. So uh, we weren't, it, it wouldn't be robust enough and didn't, wouldn't give us a enough flexibility. But if for simple things, it might be good, it probably would be good enough. Thanks. No problem. Uh, hi, uh, one question. You talked about uh, converting your uh, data sets into a columnar format. Yeah. Do you do any other uh, quality checks or standardizations on the data? Yeah, we do the, the data cleansing we do actually in uh, Storm right now. So uh, we, have, we hold in uh, Aurora, we hold for each uh, event, we hold for each field exactly uh, what it should hold. Let's say this should be a string or this should be certain data validations. And if it's not valid, we basically throw it into an invalid bucket. And then we have all kinds of statistics about what's valid, what's not valid. So when it's written to S3, it's already valid. And uh, then uh, like 99.90% of the data works, uh, the change of the format works fine because it's already cleaned. Do, do you do any remediation on the uh invalid data or do you just kind of throw it out? We store it for some time, uh, for a limited period of time, and we have events if it goes over a certain percentage of the amount of uh, that's per event, and then we manually look at it because uh, it shouldn't happen too much. So uh, we have a certain threshold that we allow a certain amount of invalid events, but if it goes over that, we manually check it. Great, thank you. No problem. Uh, this is a question to uh, Airbnb. Uh, thanks for sharing your uh, best practices. Regarding, you know, the metadata caching where you're storing uh, it on uh, MySQL, are you running into any scalability issues as the number of objects, you know, that you eventually store in S3 increase? Yeah, that's a good question. So for, like, um, so right now, so we put the data into uh, RDS instance, so we haven't run into any scalability issue. But there's a kind of issue that because all, basically all the uh, mappers or reducers going to contact um, MySQL for the metadata. So like the number of connections is 
or bottleneck. But we have a mature solution inside Airbnb that um, we set, basically we set up uh, uh, the DB proxy to address this issue. Um, but later on, we may consider like using um, more scalable DBs such as like Dynamo to Dynamo DB to save this data. Um, hi, uh, we have relatively unstructured data living in S3 and have been using uh, Athena to query it. Um, so if we move to Redshift Spectrum, can I expect improved performance if we you know, added some structure? So are you uh, converting it to any formats or it's just uh, in text? CSV? No, it, it is in Parquet. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, we have to take a look on uh, what is your use case specifically. Uh, so Athena is very good for unstructured data. Uh, so it, are you facing any issues currently with your Parquet format when you do your query with Well, Athena? we do have certain queries that go past 30 minutes and Athena times. I see, okay. So the best way is if you could meet with me after this and we can talk one-on-one -on -one and we'll see your use case and we'll decide whether we can check whether a structured uh, format would be better than an unstructured format. Okay, great, thank you. I have a, a micro question about the use of S3 notifications. Uh, we've always been cautious about this due to the fact that if you're running up to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of events, even with however many nines, there might be some missed messages. Has there been discussion or concern whoever's using that architecture? Okay, um, so um, are you using events to uh, do something like populate a uh, catalog like Dynamo? Well, or? We've avoided doing that because of some concerns, and I wondered how um, you know others have, have dealt with that. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes what people will do is, you know, because you're right, event delivery isn't 100% guaranteed. It's, you know, pretty close to that. So we often see people, you know, essentially doing a remediation okay. of the catalog, potentially using something like um, object inventory report once a day and then um, remediating that with the catalog and um, calling out differences is uh, probably a common practice there. All right, thank you. Is Athena less suited for structured data compared to Retro Spectrum? So if you, what we typically recommend is uh, uh, if you have structured data with multiple joins and large tables, it's better to use Redshift Spectrum there. Right. And then if you have unstructured data and doing ad hoc queries, uh, that's where Athena uh, does a better job. Again, it depends totally on your use case. So if you have an essay on your account and we can work together to see your use case and see what's working better for you. Right, so joins are better served with Redshift Spectrum. Large joins, large tables, yeah. and then the yeah. scale is just exabytes of data similarly. Yeah, large complex queries are uh, oftentimes a uh, redshift is a uh, better choice. Thank you. But the great thing is, you know, you are using it against the uh, same data sets, and so you can, uh, you know, do a trial. You can, you know, essentially with Spectrum, it allows you to do it in place. So uh, with in place data sets, so you can uh, start there and then load into redshift if uh, you think uh, that's going to uh, give you net benefit. Right. Makes sense. Thank you. Just, just a follow-up question to uh, his thing. Like, when do you use Athena versus S3 Select? So these two are complementary products. S3 Select, uh, which is in preview right now, is a way to efficiently retrieve a portion of the object that you have today. Uh, Athena, I mean, it just select from where, whereas Athena has all the big data, analytics, engines, and I mean, uh, querying capabilities that are built in. So I would say these are complementary products, uh, and these are not replacing each other. Yeah, I mean... Yes, right. So the integration of Athena and Select uh, is going to come in the future. So, yeah. Yeah, no. So to elaborate on that, I mean, essentially, Athena is a new API for accessing data where one, athe athe uh, one Select query corresponds to one object. And so you need a higher level um, query engine to really take advantage of that. But then when you have the plugins to Athena, which um, Spectrum and... Uh, or to select which Spectrum and Athena will use, it will both accelerate the performance because uh, S3 is only doing the pre-filtering and then only returning the results. 
to the higher level query engine and reduce cost because you're um, processing less data. Um, so the question was about um, how S3 Select in 2018 would uh, play into um, reporting. Um, you know, so once again, Athena is not a standalone tool. It's essentially an API that is doing essentially predicate pushdown to filter the data and only return the you know filtered results to things like Redshift, Redshift Spectrum, Athena. So we have seen, particularly with uh, more unstructured data types, um, you know, 400% improvement in performance in, you know, kind of the early preview uh, benchmarking that we've done. So it will definitely improve query performance, but remains to be seen, you know, how this will play into Athena versus Redshift versus Redshift Spectrum. So, and John, you meant select is not a standalone tool, right? Select, yeah. sorry. So if you have, oh. So if you have files like in S3, you want to get them into Redshift, when would you copy them into Redshift versus using Spectrum instead of copying them directly into Redshift? Um, so one of the use cases you can think of is, say, uh, you have hundreds of terabytes of data and you want to do the restore. That restore is introducing latencies. Right. So what you do is put those large tables in S3. And then you can spin up read-only clusters in Redshift. So if you have a peak, at that time, you just pull uh, data from the uh, S3, from S3 to uh, Redshift, and then run your applications. So that's one way, one of the use cases there. If you want to learn about more use cases, we can talk one-on-one -on -one right after this. Yeah. Hi, uh, my question is for Viber. Um, I have two questions for you. So one is, when you say you obfuscated your data, uh, did you use any third-party tools? And then two, do you have a way to convert the obfuscated data back to clear? No, we, we didn't use any third-party tools. We just used our own uh, uh, hashing algorithm. And the whole idea of uh, using the anonymization is so it can't be turned back. Otherwise, it's not properly anonymized. So it's a one-way option. OK, thank you. No problem. But yeah, if you want to have a uh, discussion of tokenization, it's obviously a hot topic these days. So we'd like to hear what your requirements are. and uh, you know. So feel free to reach out. Uh, this is a question for Viber use case. So in third party, when you're bringing the third party in, you said Lambda, you're triggering the Lambda to validate. So row by row, you're validating. Uh, so all the data like that, or? Or the, the data that we're, in the use case of the third party data is third party that we are partnering with, or for example, and things like that. So we are, it should be sort of a stru structured data that we know that it should be of a certain format. So we are expecting this data so we know how to validate it. I see. So, okay. The question was, you're using Aurora for storing the events. Uh, so, so you use all the data or a hot data, or say, say you have S3 data lake, right? You're, you're asking if for the, from the third parties, are we storing all the data? This is the regular events coming in. Uh, one part, it goes to Aurora, and then remaining part going to S3 bucket, S3. Uh, we're moving all the data in. All the data in. Yeah. So Aurora is using for, what is the purpose of Aurora there? What is that? Sorry, I didn't get that. Pur purpose, purpose of using Aurora. The, the purpose of using the Lambda function? No, Aurora. Oh, Aurora. Uh, the, uh, the Aurora, we don't use it for the, uh, for the third parties. We use it, uh, it's basically so we know the structure of the uh, data. In Aurora, we have all the fields. So we don't necessarily, if it's JSON, then it's easier. But uh, we get uh, also, let's say, TSV format where we don't know. It's not inside the fields themselves, the, the structure. So we need somewhere to have the, the data on the data, the, the metadata. So we use that for that, okay. Aurora for that. Thank you. No problem. Yes. Um, pardon? 
Yeah, uh, Glacier Select. So, so essentially, Glacier Select, um, you know, uses the same um, SQL semantics as um, S3 Select, but the big difference is with Glacier, obviously, this is cold archive data that traditionally you would have had to restore a data set, you know, and then load it into S3 and then be able to query it. Um, what Glacier Select allows you to do is to essentially write SQL statements to um, data that's in Glacier using the Glacier Select API, and then only the data that um, meets those statements, the objects that meet those statements will um, you know, be um, able to be restored. And you'll do a Glacier Restore still selecting which Glacier um, retrieval tier you want to use depending on how quickly you need the data, but then what gets restored will just be the portions of the objects that meet those um, Glacier Select query statements. And then that will be you know, loaded into your Glacier um, Restore location and you can uh, do whatever else uh, you want to do with that data. So it'll essentially filter the data in Glacier and then when you restore it, it's only restoring the uh, filtered results, but it's still asynchronous in the same manner that Glacier works. Uh, you can use standard um, SQL select statements, like from, where, um, yes. So, but S3 select and Glacier select will support the uh, same SQL semantics. So we are out of time, but we'll be hanging out here or outside. If you have questions, just come see us there. <laughs>